Today on This Week in Startups, Satya Patel from Homebrew joins Jason for a really deep discussion on the state of VC, generative AI's impact, why Homebrew converted to an evergreen fund with their own capital, what rules he and Jason have for investing in founders and why they might break them, and so much more. It's a great episode. Stick with us. This Week in Startups is brought to you by Mercury, where innovation meets peace of mind. Now more than ever, startups need a safe place to put their cash. Mercury offers a simple way to manage bank risk and protect every dollar, with up to $5 million in FDIC insurance and a money market fund. Visit mercury.com to apply in minutes. Squarespace, turn your idea into a new website. Go to squarespace.com twist for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use offer code twist to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. And Clumio. When you're building a company, don't let backups and compliance requirements distract you. Let the data protection experts at Clumio help with immutable air gap backups that put compliance on autopilot. Visit them at clumio.com slash twist to start a free backup or sign up for a demo. All right, everybody, we have an amazing guest on the program today. He's been on the program before, but generally busy working, investing in companies. And we ask him every year and we get him every two or three. And that gentleman is Satya Patel, not Satya Nadal, uh, uh, a different Satya. There's two great ones I know of in our industry. And Satya Patel with us today is the co-founder of Homebrew. Homebrew is a venture capital firm. I think you've been at it for about a decade, right? Yeah, that's right. Same as me. I think you're on your fourth fund, third or fourth? Fourth fund. Fourth fund, just like me. I just Mm -hmm. started raising my fourth fund. Um, And uh, Satya worked at YouTube? I worked at Google and Twitter. Google. You think about Hunter, my partner, who worked at YouTube? Hunter worked at YouTube. I know you both. Did you meet there? Is that where you and Hunter met? We met at Google, yeah. You did meet at Google, right. So uh, one of you was at YouTube, uh, Hunter, and you were at Google proper. uh, And you've invested in dozens of companies. And let's talk a little bit about Google at the start of this. What did you learn most at Google that you carry forward? And then we'll go to the second question, which I don't know if you've heard Freeberg, who also was there uh, at Google. I don't know if you guys. Yeah, of course, we overlapped and we worked together. Oh, fantastic. So you did. Um, And he's been a little bit, um, I don't want to say critical, but his observation has been big company, maybe playing on their heels a bit, maybe all this antitrust stuff. So I'd love to get your assessment of Google through the light of ChatGPT versus Bard versus Bing and the future of Google, but also that er- those early days and what you learned and then how that applies to company building today as you invest. And welcome back to the program. Thanks. And thanks for having me back and being patient with me. Uh, we try to focus our time and energy on our founders. So uh, yes. we don't often get to talk about what we do, but uh, appreciate you having I, me on I once again. I play the long game <laughs> with yeah. the great Indeed. guests. Indeed. You just ask every six months <laughs> until you tell us to stop asking. Well, you got the right Sacha if you wanted the great guests. I mean, the wrong Sacha if you wanted the great guests, but I'm here anyway. Um, so let's see. Uh, yeah, and I was worried you were going to want to spend a lot of time on Twitter, which I don't want to do, even though uh, I have fond memories of my time there as well. But yeah. uh, let's see, at Google. Yeah, so the early days of Google were incredible because the people who joined there in those days didn't join because they thought they were going to make a boatload of money. It wasn't clear like what Google was going to become. It was exciting because people joined one because during the interview process or as you were talking to the company, you met 
the smartest people you'd ever met before, uh, who you knew you could learn from and that you wanted to work with. And two, you really believed in the mission, this mission of making the world's information universally accessible and useful. And uh, the company was created in such a way that there wasn't a lot of management oversight. So when you joined the company, you were kind of let loose to go do work. Um, and so all of that led to a few things that I think about in the context of company building. Uh, one is the importance of culture and values early in the days of company building. We're big believers that that culture and those values, if you're uh, thoughtful about them and intentional about them, uh, can be really powerful tools for long-term value creation. And that whether you're intentional or not, the values and the culture of a company gets set within the first 20 employees or so. So you can choose to be intentional and be deliberate and build a culture that's defined and uh, mm. kind of authentic to the founders, or you can choose to be unintentional and something's going to get built anyway, uh, which you may not have any control over influence or influence over uh, and may not reflect the will or the personality of the founders. Um, and we think there's a lot of power in the former and being intentional about it. So that's number one. Uh, number two is that you can define the culture and values, but none of that matters if you don't hire people that match up with those that culture and those values. And so the quality of the first people that you hire uh, and the fit with uh, the culture and the values, and really a lot of that translates to alignment with the mission of the company, uh, is a really strong, you know, powerful lever in the building of startups. And then the last thing is, you know, a culture of trust. Um, we think a lot about that in company building as well. And what we find is that if you work with people who assume the best in what in the decisions that you make, uh, in what you say, um, and give you the opportunity to kind of go hang yourself, right? Like it's not a culture of no, it's a culture of yes. Those tend to be the companies that uh, move the fastest, learn the quickest, um, and have the highest likelihood of success as well. And Google had a well-defined culture and set of values, hired really intelligently, and for a long time was uh, a place where everyone always said yes and you rarely heard no. Um, you could take action and apologize after the fact. Um, and for me, those were the things that stood out about the early days of Google and things that we think about now at Homebrew in the context of company building and the advice and counsel that we provide to companies at the early stages. And you did something radical around the third or fourth fund. You decided to use your own capital and not raise from outside LPs. Yeah. This was, yeah, I, I was shocked and impressed because I've never seen anybody do that. How has, when did you start that? Was it fund three or four? Fund, fund, fund four. Uh, so we made the decision in late 21 when we had to, make the call on whether we wanted to raise a fourth fund or not. And so it's been about 18 months or so since we've been operating with the, the new LP model, which is no LPs and just our money. Uh, scary, uh, intense. Did you become a better investor? Are you more risk-taking or less risk-taking when it's yeah, your own money? Really good questions. Um, I guess at a high level, we'll see if it's a good decision or not. It's kind of the dumbest economic decision we could have made in the short term. Right, we don't have a large yeah. fund. We don't have management fees. Uh, we are 100 percent putting our capital at risk. 
So tough to know whether it's a good decision economically, at least in the short term. But in the long term, you know, our view is as venture capitalists, you have to believe that you're good pickers, right? Like you've believed that about yourself for a long time when it was your own money and then scout money and then the fund. Um, and if you believe that, and if you are fortunate enough to have the financial wherewithal, why wouldn't you want to be 100% of the LP, right? That's the, the best economics you can have um, is, uh, in terms of return is if you're putting your, your own capital work and you're 100% of the LP and you get 100% of the returns. So assuming that we're reasonably good at this, then in the long term, it should work out better for us. Uh, now, to answer your question, are we more risk-seeking? Uh, has it been more stressful? Like those kinds of things. I'd say, uh, one, we arguably are more risk-seeking. Mm. Um, and the reason for that is because when you don't have a fund, you don't have to worry about check size. You don't have to worry about ownership. You don't have to worry about whether this investment can return the entire fund. Um, mm. And as a result, if you're just thinking about that investment as an individual investment and can we earn a return on this particular company, you can afford to do things that you wouldn't be able to do within the strategically defined box of a fund. And so, mm. you know, by definition, I think we can take maybe not more risk, but different kinds of risk than we took before. As a founder, ensuring that your cash is safe is priority number one. And the $250,000 FDIC limit is just not enough for most businesses. We all know that. So let me tell you about Mercury. Through its partner banks and sweep networks, Mercury customers can access up to $5 million in FDIC insurance. That's 20 times the per bank limit. These sweep networks protect your deposits by spreading them across multiple banks, right? It's really clever, really simple, but hard to execute on. And that's why you need Mercury as a partner. So this limits the risk of any single point of failure. And with Mercury Vault, any funds above the FDIC limit can be easily invested in a money market fund, mostly composed of US government-backed securities. And it's so easy to get started opening an account. You can apply in minutes, and many customers are approved and onboarded in less than two hours. Mercury also offers great resources for founders, including their Mercury Raise program. I know about this because I'm in their database. I signed up and I get all these great founder pitches from the Mercury Raise project. So in Mercury Raise, they help founders connect with investors like myself and then, uh, you know, boost their fundraising. So here's your call to action. Head to mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury for banking. If you're interested in Mercury Raise programs, applications for both Seed and Series A are open from April 3rd to April 20th. Disclaimer, Mercury is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services are provided by Choice Financial Group and Evolve Bank and Trust members FDIC. The structure of a fund yeah. is such, if I can unpack that, have you unpack that first, uh, is that you're trying to put maybe 30 names into a fund, 30 logos, as we say, 30 companies, and then have one return the entire fund by hitting 40, 50, 60x, right? And you have some dilution maybe along the way. So a 50x, 30x, 40x, whatever it happens to be, can return the fund, the fees, and then get you into the black. You don't That's have to right. think that yeah. way. Right. In, in a fund, you have to live by the power law, right? Mm -hmm. And we don't have to think about that. You know, as, as long as we, we'd like to, of course, have investments that return 50, 100, 200x. But if we feel like uh, we can earn three to ten x on an investment. We can choose to take that risk if we want, mm. um, because you know we're not limited to just the seed stage anymore either. We can invest at any stage we want as well with our own capital. And historically, Homebrew is a seed stage fund, and it still primarily is. 
but we have more flexibility in terms of when we enter an investment as well. And as a result, our return expectations may be different. And you are going to continue on uh, in terms of you don't have to, you're not a slave to fund dynamics. Amazing. No. Uh, and then what else? And then uh, in terms of kind of the stress, uh, I think it's more stressful to manage other people's money than it is just to manage your own. Mm. So sure, we're taking risk, more risk because it's our money, but uh, the responsibility and the burden of managing other people's money and having to return, you know, ideally 5x in a seed stage fund uh, and hopefully a lot more, um, that's really stressful. Mm. Um, and it also, when you have a fund and other people's money, creates this feeling uh, that you need to be competing for every opportunity out there. Mm. Right? Like you can't miss the one that could end up being a hundred or two hundred X returner. You're a slave um, to the power law. You yeah. if you miss the Uber, if you miss the YouTube, whatever you miss, that's the defining moment of your career is the omission. That's right. Right. Mm. Um and again with our money now, there's no FOMO, right? There's no fear of missing out. Uh right. if we happen to miss an opportunity, it's not like we're failing all these people who gave us money. We're failing ourselves, certainly. Um but it's just not the same level of stress as when you have other people's money, especially other people's money like we did. We had institutional money from you know endowments and family foundations who are trying to do really good work in the world. Um, mm. And when you have that kind of responsibility and that burden and that opportunity to contribute to their legacies, that's, that's, that's a stressor. Um, so we how don't feel that first, anymore. How did the first couple of funds do? And was this decision based upon the returns of those funds, good or bad? Uh, uh, and how did that, your performance then in those first three funds contribute to your thinking for fund four? And then how much of your time on a percentage basis was taken up by fundraising, management, just overall over the last decade? If you had 10 years, how much of your own hunter time was actually managing the LP base and raising from them? Yeah, listen, we started the fund uh, 10 years ago at the beginning of the greatest bull market in history, right? Uh, the timing. So, <laughs> yeah, so we were yeah. really fortunate with the returns from the fund, but the returns of the fund didn't have anything to do with why we decided to make this decision. That was more a strategic decision about what we felt was necessary to be competitive in this market and, uh, and how we wanted to spend our time. We can get more into that if it's interesting. Um, but we had the financial wherewithal to be able to do what we're doing because of uh, the returns of the funds. Uh, but that wasn't the decision maker. And then uh, in terms of how much time we spent on things tied to having a fund, fundraising, fund administration, reporting, all those kinds of things, um, it was probably a good 20% of our time at least, if not more. I mean, that even with a outside fund administrator, with outside fund counsel, um, you know, our view is like you're always fundraising as a fund manager. Yeah. Right. You're all, you're always building and maintaining LP relationships. You're trying to good do a good job of being transparent about the work and reporting, and uh, of course, you have to provide financial information and annual audits and all those kinds of things. And so, it is time consuming. It's one of the underestimated things about being an investor that a lot of people who are angel investors or want to be fund managers don't appreciate or understand is how much time you devote to things that are unrelated to investing. Probably. I would say on average, people spend 20%, yeah, maybe 30%. So. I, I, yeah. It depends on where you're at in the cycle. Um, so let's go back to Google for a second. Uh, and amazing learnings uh, that you brought forward. Is If there is something 
challenging about running Google today? What is it? And then how does having this incredible money printing machine then become in some ways a blocker for pursuing opportunities, specifically this AI chat, you know, chatbot sort of functionality? And have you been thinking about that? And, and where does it lead you? Yeah, probably not as much as Friedberg. Um, but uh, I'd say it becomes a huge challenge. You know, one is you develop a culture of no, as I talked about kind of the opposite culture in the early days. Uh, even that, I would argue kind of 8,000, 10,000 employees, Google became a place where the default answer was no. Whether it was, you know, a manager signing off on a new project, the executives kind of greenlighting an effort, um, wanting to make a small change or release it experiment, like all those things became much more difficult to do. And certainly at the scale that they're at today, uh, when uh, everybody's job has been thin sliced, right? Like when you're a young company and there are a few people, like everybody's got lots of scope. And over time, like job roles get defined really uh, thinly. And as a result, people are very protective of their jobs and their responsibilities. And so it becomes easier to elbow people out and say no. Uh, so I imagine like when that's the case and you're trying to protect, protect your fiefdom, it stifles innovation, right? No stifles innovation. Um, yeah. And so that's one thing. The second thing is at their scale um, with the money-making machine that they have, like anything that potentially cannibalizes the existing business is really difficult to invest in. Mm. Um, and certainly... AI and ChatGPT and all these things can have a profound impact on the core businesses, uh, especially uh, one that's reliant upon, in some ways, the the volume in lots of ways the volume of searches that happen. Right? Do you see chat-based, you know, back and forth AI chat interfaces as uh, a replacement uh, for Google search and for you know, hey, here's some data plus some links to go deeper? Or do you think it's complementary in some ways? Do you are you yourself using ChatGPT more than Google searches? Is it replacing some number of searches for you yet? Yeah, I, I do think that the the challenge with it in relation to searches one is going to be in both those categories. There'll be types of searches that ChatGPT is just going to be better for, and so it's going to encourage entirely new types of searches. You know, things that you maybe not did, wouldn't search for before, like you will search for now with with chat uh, and AI. The second will be areas where it replaces existing searches that you already did and now you'll get a better result. And third will be where it complements them. Um, and so there are, uh, I wouldn't say like, uh, I've been more playing with chat GPT and uh, some of the other AI platforms out of curiosity. So I wouldn't say that they're a normal course of my behavior yet. Um, but I can certainly envision scenarios in which they can be better. So, for example, I've been playing with lots of travel-related searches. Uh, travel is always one of those great searches uh, or great ways to judge a service like search or this because it, it's um, it's ever-changing. There's so many facets to it. Yeah, yeah. Unpack what you learned. And travel is always one of those areas like every new founder, when they're thinking about their bu first business idea, somehow wants to solve like social travel or uh, making travel better. Uh, and it's been really difficult to do. Yep. And so it seems like one of those things that machines should be able to do better or in interesting ways. And so uh, I've been playing with these products and comparing results uh, related to travel. Um, but that's a category of searches that does exist today. Uh, I would argue that 
most consumers would say that uh, the experience is not great. Um, and that that's a category in which certainly traditional search can be complemented, but I think potentially replaced uh, in some powerful ways. So that's an example where, and, and then as you know, travel is a very monetizable category. Oh, right? yes. So uh, that's, an, uh, that's a vertical in which I have to believe Google sees itself in real risk uh, if it doesn't address that with chat-driven products. And they had that to a certain extent. If we look at the mobile, how disruptive mobile was, you used to uh, do a search um, maybe in Google for travel or for shopping and then or for a restaurant, which is kind of related to travel. And then you said, you know what, I'll just open Uber and I'll do my travel there. I'll open Southwest. I'll do my travel there. I'll open Amazon. I'll do a product search and a purchase there as opposed to going to Google. And of course, if I'm looking for a restaurant, do I need to do a Google search and then click on Yelp or do I just open Yelp? So they did see some headwinds there, but they still grew because they had, I guess, all this other, I guess the search pies kept growing. Right, exactly. So is there an argument here that even if this happens, even the, the chat AI interfaces, they could be monetizable, number one. You could figure out a way to embed links in there or close the transaction at the end of the thread. Hey, do you want to buy this? And the default would be Expedia or Orbitz or whoever it is. So it seems like it still results in a transaction. So would it? is there an argument that it won't cannibalize it, that it'll just be uh, a better experience for users that still results in a transaction? I think if you're Google, that's what you're hoping, right? Yeah. Like that you can build it in such a way that Google, because consumer behavior is hard to change, still becomes the default place you go to start mm-hmm. your AI-driven chat experience or your search, however you want to describe it, um, because people are used to going to Google. And if you can deliver a good enough experience, maybe people don't switch, right? Um, consumer behavior is really hard to change, right? Uh, most people think of a particular product used in a particular way, right? Like one use case addressed really well for one type of problem. It's why we have different apps for Uber versus OpenTable versus, you know, uh, Orbitz, right? Like you didn't, people don't use the same service for all of that, unlike in other parts of the world. Um, and I think people think of search and they think of Google. Mm-hmm. So if uh, you, you know, the reason that search works at Amazon, I would argue, and they were able to build search there is because people thought of Amazon as shopping. Um, and search is helpful in the context of the shopping use case. Um, but I don't think people, st- you know, went to Amazon to start searching. Um, Google has that behavior. And so can they harness that behavior and deliver a good enough AI driven experience that makes it so people are less likely to switch to other search or chat services? Okay, we're about to announce the winner of our second Show Us Your Space competition. Elise runs a digital sports nutrition business built on Squarespace called Whoa Sports Nutrition. You can go check it out at wohesportsnutrition.com. Wohesportsnutrition.com. Congrats, Elise. You're going to enjoy $1,000 in Squarespace credits. And if you want to be an amazing entrepreneur like Elise or start your side project or anything in between, Squarespace is how you do it. From personal projects to giant tech startups, anything can now be built on Squarespace. We love it so much. We use it for Remote Demo Day and many other projects. Here are some amazing Squarespace features that founders love. You're going to get unlimited e-commerce templates analytics inventory management all of that stuff built in seo 24 hour seven day a week customer support 
everything just works inside of Squarespace. And of course, it's optimized for mobile. You know about the gorgeous templates, but you can also sell content there, courses, etc., appointments, and save the 15% tax that other platforms are taking from you. That's your money. Don't give it to a platform. Use Squarespace instead. Squarespace.com slash twist for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code twist to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. We love you, Squarespace. And they hold the belt here at This Week in Startups for our longest running partner. Thank you so much for supporting This Week in Startups and our mission to support founders and inspire innovation. You could very easily uh, drop uh, a Google, uh, uh, the Google's chat results, AI chat results into a search. You could do a search on YouTube and you have the entire corpus there of YouTube's uh, transcripts. Do you believe uh, that these pools of data will be balkanized, sealed off from each other, and then Google could have an advantage in that, my gosh, they have all the that YouTube information, they have all that Gmail information, Google Docs information, and other places like, say, ChatGPT wouldn't even have access to it. So what, what are your thoughts on the pools of data being the new oil? Reddit, Twitter, and Quora, I believe, were all used to train ChatGPT. I believe all of those have now said, hey, ixnay on the using us as a training data. So that stuff's going to have to be ripped out of GPT-4. So based on what you know and we live through in terms of fair use of content, what do you think the outcome is here in terms of who gets to scrape whose data and train their model on it? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I know you guys have talked about this a little bit already, but you know, generative AI and copyright law and who's the real owner of IP, uh, what happens when you mix these things, um, it's a really fascinating question, but I do think there's something to be said for having access to proprietary data that lots of people care about, right? If uh, Google is able to maintain the proprietary nature of YouTube data, of uh, certainly your G Drive data, your Gmail data, um, and help you have a personalized algorithm based on your private mm-hmm. data, that's going to be really powerful in terms of an experience, right? Uh, but that, you know, it remains to be seen whether that personal experience is a complement or a substitute for a broader search experience. Um, but I do think that some for some of the most interesting kind of areas for innovation and potentially for investment are how do you take the foundation models and combine them with proprietary information? What's the infrastructure needed to do that? And then how do you make that accessible in a product experience that is differentiated because of that proprietary data? Um, you know, I this think that's where there's room like, for innovation. Yeah, this does seem like the the big opportunity. You've got ChatGPT, which is kind of like saying cloud computing, if we want to mm-hmm. say an analogy, or mobile operating systems. And then what do you do with it? Well, here's my data set. Here's the natural language model or here's stable diffusion, whatever it is, images. So here's my data, here's a, a model, and then here's some software interface, you know, uh, to wrap those two things together does seem like a unique investment opportunity. Are you seeing uh, any way to invest in the area? Or do you think a lot of the because of the pace that ChatGPT is going and Bard is going uh, at Google, that a lot of these ideas will just be subsumed into those motherships? Well, I think every enterprise of scale is going to want to be able to incorporate its proprietary data into these LLMs or foundation models, right? So there is an announcement of an investment in a company called Pinecone that a lot of venture firms in 
the Valley competed over Andreessen and ended up uh, winning it, I believe. And Pinecone is a vector database that allows for the aggregation of all kinds of different information in the context of building these models. Um, and that kind of infrastructure is going to be really powerful in helping bridge the gap between models trained on public data and proprietary data and led, leading and then combining those two to develop a proprietary model effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can see that, you know, companies like Salesforce uh, will want to have a proprietary model, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and it sounds like they're working with uh, OpenAL already uh, and ChatGPT to help build the foundations of Einstein, which is their AI platform. Um, and every, you know, uh, Disney is going to want its own foundation model, especially around gen- generative AI and its IP. Yeah. Um, which is going to try to protect Jedi. really hard. Can you imagine right? like kids yeah. going and being like, you know what, make yourself into a Jedi, tell a Jedi story, and then publish it to Disney Plus, And then they have a contest because they, they used to, you probably remember this in the YouTube days. I, I know you weren't at YouTube, but there were like these moments and times where fans started writing fiction on the internet. Yeah. Then the fan fiction gave way to fan stories. And one of them was Lucas, where people would dress up in robes and do lightsaber battles. And Lucas embraced it. Star Trek fought it. Paramount fought it. And to this day, you can see all kinds of creative stories that are getting, I would say, 70%, 80% of the quality of the Disney Star Wars collection. Um, that gap's should close and you would be able to make your own star wars stories um it's already closing i don't i don't know if you've seen some of these like short films that people have been making from these generative ai platforms but they're incredible there was uh, a short they, ai film a sci-fi a, ai film i'm i guess the probably one you saw as well on twitter um that uh was trending as well yeah people are starting to make these short ai stories through ai generative ai it's crazy does this feel faster than any other technology revolution that we've lived through? Is this moving faster or is it just we were kind of bored and Web3 was so didn't deliver much product that we now are just enamored with this? Or is I think this actually we were, moving <laughs> as fast as it feels? We were desperate for a new platform for sure. Yep. But I think with the launch of ChatGPT3, the pace of innovation um, is unlike anything we've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, we are certainly in an AI bubble, but it's also certainly true that there's going to be tremendous value created by virtue of AI. And the biggest challenge as investors is figuring out where is, where is that value going to accrue? Uh, mm. Certainly, it's going to accrue in the foundation models, which ones, you know, TBD. Uh, Certainly, OpenAI seems to have a leg up on a lot of other folks right now. Um, but outside of the, the foundation models, you know, where is their value going to be captured? And, and I think that's the question that every investor, whether they've been investing in AI for a while or new to AI, is asking and uh, trying to figure out. That's pretty wild. Um, when you look at companies in this space... Uh, and you look at companies just in general in 2023, what, what's the market like today? Because you and I uh, have a very similar trajectory. We worked on technology companies. I had a little stint as a journalist too. Um, and then we started as capital allocators, literally as the cycle started. Okay, here we are. The cycle ended. Do you feel the cycle has restarted properly? And what 
would you qualitatively say life is like for a capital allocator in 2023? We're a couple of months in now, so I think we got enough data compared to when you started, which was probably 2010, 2009, 2011. Yeah, well, I, you might remember, Jason, my first VC job was in 1997 when you were doing Silicon Alley Reporter. Oh, right. Uh, so, you know, this is my third cycle. Third cycle, uh, for sure. Yeah. So, um, so let's compare the start of this cycle and the start, like 97 is pretty close to the start of the, the yeah. dot-com era. <laughs> let's go through um, these and compare what you're experiencing. Maybe work backwards. What's it like today? What was it like last time? And then go through Yeah. So today, I don't think we're in a cycle yet, honestly, because mm. outside of generative AI and maybe a couple of other areas, there's no investing happening, right? Mm. The seed market is as busy as ever. But if you're looking at Series A and later, again, outside of generative AI, there's either inside rounds or there's down rounds and recaps. Like, okay. There's nothing else happening. Um, so we certainly are not in another bubble or another cy- up cycle yet. I think we're in a bear cycle for uh, an extended period of time now. Um, mm. Certainly the implosion of SVB doesn't help things. Uh, no. So uh, it's so very, late feels stage very different. Is indigestion, working out all of this craziness. Yeah. That resetting tracks- evaluations, resetting the expectations. How much longer yeah. does that go on for the rest of the year? Easily. Easily the rest Easily. of the Okay, so two yeah. years of this craziness, and then maybe even into 2024. I expect it to go well into 2024 at least, because the other thing you're going to see is there's just not going to be a lot of liquidity, mm. right? Like the IPO market is shut, feels like for this year. And then you'll start to see it open up next year. And then the question is like, how do these companies trade? And if they mm. trade at historical multiples, then there's still going to be a lot of cleanup that has to happen in the private markets. Uh, before companies are in a position to uh, earn a return for investors. What happens if the private companies, these ones that had these incredible series B, C's, and D's, uh, the market opens up for IPOs, but the prices for those private rounds in 2021 are not supported and the companies are still underwater four years later in 2024 and 2025 and they're still underwater. But they decide, hey, we're going to go public anyway. What happens yeah, to all well, that money? They just conv- that those late rounds just convert and they get one times back. Yeah, and they hope that they uh, accrue value and grow in the public markets, right? Uh, Got it. You know, Square is a perfect example of that, right? Uh, it went public at a price lower than its last private market valuation, and then as a public company, until recently, uh, it did really what a well. Run it had, yeah, yeah, um, and I think that's what people are going to hope for. There's no question in my mind. I'm, you know, 100% sure that come 24, 25, there will be a lot of companies who still have not grown into their private market valuations from 21 and early 22. Um, and so there will be companies that have to go public in order to generate some liquidity and get access to capital, uh, who will do it at prices lower than their prior round valuations. And those folks will not have a choice because the way the documents are done, they just get dragged along into the public market and they just take their one X and that's it. And maybe yep. they have a coupon. Could, could it also result in chaos on those boards? Are you on any of those boards where it could get chaotic? What's it like? Yeah, I think there's going to be a big divergence uh, in points of view around the investors from the very latest stage and you know, those who invested at the middle stage and those who invested at the early, invested at the earliest stages, right? Like the economic incentives are completely different. Um, and their points of view around 
liquidity in the short term versus a long term are completely different. So mm-hmm. there is going to be a divergence in uh, cap table battles around how to approach some of these decisions. But uh, founders in general have a lot of control in these situations because of how these rounds have been structured in the last few Oof. years. And so yeah. um, they're going to have to uh, pick sides in some of these battles. Um, and it's going to lead to some hurt feelings and bad blood. Uh, absolutely. And, and certainly bad behavior, which we're already starting to see. The, the bad behavior is crazy. I mean, it's yeah. or I'm already having this in my portfolio, like just predatory rounds, people jumping the fence, blocking things. It's just, it, it's, it's gnarly it's, and it's not fun. It makes being a seed stage investor a lot easier. Uh, yeah, absolutely. In these situations. But you, I, mean, I think c- you appreciate this, Jason, but for a lot of investors, this is their first down cycle. Yeah. So they don't know how to behave. They're still trying to right. build their track records. Uh, they're still trying they're to make scared. partner at their firms and they're scared. Yeah. That's, I mean, the bad behavior almost always roots itself in a lack of confidence in your career and the fear that your career is going to end because the returns are going to be so terrible. And it is, this is where people, it's easy to make fun of venture capitalists. It's an incredible job in the world to anoint winners and losers and to write checks and get this 20% carry on the upside. It's, it's, it's magical and it's easy to hate on it as well. But the truth is, you know, if you're, if this is, you're, you're a first or second time fund manager through the cycle, it could be over for you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and listen, this it's not bad behavior only on the parts of new investors. There are plenty of people who are at established firms who've been in this business for a long time mm. who, for different reasons, can also act poorly, right? Mm. Uh, because they're fighting still for their share of the management company at their venture fund or, uh, you know, they have some kind of uh, carry structure that is, has some deal by deal component. Um, they uh, are worried about uh, an LP relationship uh, that is on the rocks or unstable. There's all kinds of reasons that people can be scared or uh, can lead them to bad behavior. And it isn't limited to people who are relatively new to this business. We're seeing it kind of up and down mm. uh, the cap table and across firms. Are you trying to build the next Uber or Robinhood? I hope so. Well, here are three important tips for you. First, make sure your data is protected. Obviously, remember, just because your data is in the cloud doesn't mean it's automatically backed up. Your data is your responsibility. You got to make sure it's backed up. Second, don't let backups and compliance requirements distract you. Let your engineers focus on product innovation, not writing scripts for compliance audits. And when it comes to backups, the major players have major limitations like snapshots. If your account is compromised, your backups are compromised. But Plumio stores your backups on a different server. So if your main account is compromised, your backups are always safe the way it should be. And third, take control of your cloud costs. You'd be surprised how much of your storage costs come from backups, snapshots, versioning, and replication. Or maybe you're maybe you wouldn't be surprised because you've seen these <laughs> jaw-dropping bills. Well, Clumio can help you with all three of these important points. They provide turnkey data protection that is air gapped immutable and cost optimized. Clumio has saved customers over 30% on backup costs while putting security and compliance on autopilot. Visit them at clumio.com slash twist to start a free backup or sign up for a demo. That's clumio.com slash twist. What was the LP reaction when you told them, no, thank you, when they were yeah. wanted to come into launch run four? And did, uh, they, did that make people like 10 times more interested? And like, I know you're not taking anybody's money. But how about I just give you some of my money? Yeah. I mean, it was interesting in that, 
maybe not surprising there are like no one's ever said that to us before everyone wants to get bigger so we had a whole bunch of questions to ask you because we thought you might want to get bigger Mm. we don't know what to ask you if you want to get you know smaller and not take our money anymore Mm. um so yeah it was disappointment and and for us it was disappointing as well honestly because we only had 10 lps we had been institutional from the very beginning and we've really enjoyed working with them and they've been incredible supporters so it was a hard conversation to have. Um, mm. We didn't surprise them. We got given them, you know, breadcrumbs over the course of time that it might go in this direction. Um, but the good news is we've found ways to work with them since um, we, you know, sometimes because we're stage agnostic now in many ways, we can do later stage checks and pull together SPVs and we rely on our oh, LPs for that. Yeah. yeah. Have you so done a couple done, of those so far? Yeah, we have. We, uh, we've yeah. got a handful of those now. Um, it is and we magical. Still Explain find ways. to the audience. Yeah what's magical about the SPV process uh, and what it does for you as a fund manager uh, yeah. or now, um, you know. A, a yeah, we never did it when we had LP capital. We didn't like the misalignment of incentives uh, that it can create, especially when uh, you take money from people who aren't your LPs in the core funds or not all your LPs in the funds can invest in SPVs. But the idea behind a special purpose vehicle is a fund specific to a single investment. Um, and the beauty of that is your returns are then tied to just that one investment mm-hmm. rather than tied to returning an entire fund, where generally speaking, you have to return all the capital in a fund before as an investor, you earn the economics through carry. And so with a single investment fund, it's just that single company that determines whether you earn a return or not. Um, and then you know the, and then the downside of that is every time you want to do an investment with an SPV, you have to raise capital again. So yes. there's no pooled capital in advance so you that you can slower, allocate. You have to herd a bunch of cats. We've done 270 SPVs now. I think I've done more than wow. anybody. And I actually literally started an SPV company because I don't know if you heard a short fund management went out of business. Yes, I saw so that. I hired and I'll announce it here for the first time the top three tax people over there because it really is a tax issue at the core of this. Sure. And I hired the top three tax people from Ashore or what I thought were the top three my team thought were and we started spvsolutions.com. Year one is only our SPVs because we have a big group of these to manage. Uh, but maybe in year two, we'll let other people do it. But it's the absolute worst business to be in <laughs> is managing yeah. other people's SPVs. But it's such a powerful thing because individuals get to decide, I want to invest in this or I don't. So for somebody who's an active investor, and then they get to decide how much they put in, and they can look at our investment from our fund as a proxy for that. And we typically do 250k, 500k. And people will say, Oh, wait, you're putting 750k into this, you're putting only 100 into this, you're putting 250. Does that mean you have a certain amount of conviction? It's like, hmm, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so congratulations, you figured it out when we put a little bit more money in. That means I might be a little more greedy, but I find SPVs are like almost the purest form of being a capital allocator because I have to write a deal memo. And then we right. have every founder do a webinar with our 11,000 syndicate members. And man, it's just, I will have people come to me, Satya, and say, you re- you wrote in your book or you said on this episode or of your podcast, you know, this is stuff you don't invest in. And in the deal memo, you're doing this. And you said, this is the proper valuation method. And you've totally thrown that out the window. And I'm like, yep. I have a heuristic, I have a book of heuristics and I'm willing to throw some of them out when I get the vibe that I think yeah, that this should right. be the one. And, and we say that all the time. It's important to have frameworks, but it's important to know when to break the frameworks as a venture investor, right? Yeah. Um, you know, if you're always playing by the framework, you're likely going to miss some incredible opportunities. 
explain uh, one of your frameworks or do dueling mental model frameworks here. You give one and I'll give one. You give uh, one and I'll give one. For a long time, our one of ours has always been uh, we don't invest in solo founders. Hmm. And there's a reason that people don't invest in solo founders, but you break it sometimes. So explain yeah. why you have this heuristic, why you have this rule, and then when you break it. The, the simple reason we have the heuristic is, uh, one, it's incredibly to build, hard to build a startup. Mm. Uh, we find it's much harder to do it when you're on your own and you don't have somebody sharing uh, the battle in the battle with you. Uh, Generally speaking, companies at the early stages need to be able to build a product, distribute a product, and build a team that distributes and builds a product. And it's very hard to find one person who has all those skills. Mm. Um, and then founders also have to be incredible storytellers. And part of their job is to eventually recruit people to their company, sell to customers, sell to investors. And if they can't get at least one other person bought in, then uh, it feels like uh, a harbinger of things to come. And so those are some of the reasons that we haven't invested or try not one. to invest in single founders, solo founders. But I, we break I, that I, rule. Yeah. You have to break the rule when you have somebody who is iconoclastic, somebody who is transcendent. And I have many times broken the rule. And when I do, the reason I tell our team is this person better be exceptional at hiring and inspiring legendary people. Because if they're a solo founder, they don't get the benefit of like, I'm the business head on the three headed, you know, monster and they're the tech and they're the design and we all come together as this, you know, incredible thing. The other one is just backing builders. So even when you have multiple founders, we have a rule, we back builders. And I actually literally bought the domain name, webackbuilders.com. Uh, and we really try to find people who know how to build product because at the early stage, what do you have? To kind of figure it out but then once in a while we will find a team that's two people or even three and there's no developer on it but boy they work together at google envision somewhere else and yeah they all worked in business development or marketing and we just say okay screw it we're gonna break that rule yeah we've done that uh, too uh, i would think we you know part of the skill set of building as i said kind of the three legs of this tool of the company one is building the product yeah and so you want people who are technical or product people, but we've invested in non-technical teams. And especially in today's world, it's possible to get really far with a bunch of third-party products that you assemble to build an initial version of a product and get it tested in market. So if the founding team is really deep in an area and knows it cold and has a vision of the world that really resonates, but they're not technical or they're not product people, you can still get excited about something. And so we similarly, we've broken that rule uh, before as well. Okay. What's another one that you broke? What's another heuristic? Uh, I love these ones related to the founders. Uh, yeah. The founders I mean, our, are, our probably one of our primary heuristics is we want to only invest in founders who've experienced the pain firsthand. So mm -hmm. it's hard for us to invest in founders who are coming to a problem or a market area based on academic research or like yeah. having looked for a really good idea. Um, yes. Which by the way, was we, Bezos, right? Like, so, yeah. you know, they, they, Bezos didn't suffer through not being able to buy books online. He literally was like, this seems like something you could actually send in the mail because it's not that big and it has a high profit margin. Like he literally yeah. did an analysis to find that. Opportunity. Exactly. Yeah. I think yeah. he was trying to decide between ties and books, 
right? Because yeah. ties were lighter and high value. And anyway, um, yeah, so that we, we have always said that we want people to experience the pain firsthand and really know the domain because they've lived in it. Um, but we break that rule every once in a while because you come across a team that has, has done so much work to learn about an area um, and have some functional expertise that is relevant, but maybe not the domain expertise and right. have this incredible insight based on the work that they've done. Um, and you have to write the check. They figured something out. They have some secret about That's right. the space exactly. that they figured out. And, and, you know, when you look at it, Airbnb had no right, a couple of designers from RISD to come in and reboot hospitality. And if you got five amazing people who were incredibly successful in the hotel business and put them together and gave them unlimited funding, they could never have conceived of Airbnb. It would have been That's right. Just they would have never accepted it. You know, the other one I have is entry price matters. Uh-huh. And you know, I'm like, you know, it's really important. We we have to have a reasonable entry price here. And then it's like, you know what? This founder wants 15 million. They want 20 million. The product doesn't exist. It's just in their head. But they've done it before. And they got the band back together. Oh, f- it. Here's a million bucks. There's a half million bucks. Yeah, we got to be on this ride. And, you know, I will throw out the entry price matters rule if it doesn't. But I, you want to have that discipline about entry price, which is why I took yeah. off 2020 and 21. I was spending a lot of time on the accelerator and our accelerator and selling secondary shares in 2020 and 2021, to be yeah, honest. I, I, I we have always that. believed that entry price and hence ownership matter, especially when you, when you have a fund, it's all about the, the cheapest price you're ever going to get is the first time you buy. So yeah. uh, price and ownership matter a lot. Airbnb leads us to a different example of a heuristic, which is we, we never think about market size. Right, because if you had looked at Airbnb, you would have said, "How many people want to stay on other people's couches?" Yeah, that's a zero. Right. That's like a one percent market size. Right, and same with. I remember how many times I had the argument about Uber with different people who were like, "Well, the taxi industry is only so big." Right, like, right. Um, so our view is, we don't think about is this market worth billions of dollars today. We think about is this market large, meaning is the pain felt by a lot of people? Mm-hmm. Is the pain acute? Is it a hair on fire problem or kind of a top three problem for the people who are experiencing it? And is it valuable? Can you extract some economic rent mm. for addressing that pain over the course of time? You and know what we've I add always to that found one is frequency. Yeah, How often yeah. do they have it, right? The pain. Yeah, that's a good that's a good proxy for it, right? Yeah. Um, and what we found is in our best companies, we've always underestimated the market size because yeah, the course. great founders are able to find a way to expand the market over the course of time. So as long as you start with something meaningful enough, people will find a way. Um, and so that's a heuristic that uh, we are thoughtful about. And you know, you need to do the right assessment around whether the pain is large, acute, and valuable. Um, right. But on occasion, Only we'll break even that huge one. markets. But like, yeah. how do we define huge here? Because the great founders induce a market to exist. What yeah. was the market for podcasts before podcasts exist? Is like were people trading like basement tapes of you know, audio interviews. I'm sure they were. I'm sure there were underground interviews that, you know, people traded tapes of, but, you know, I get, and there was pirate radio, I guess, but how do you even size podcasting? Well, podcasting is so long tail that now there's a podcast on every topic and it's kind of like NPR has a hundred shows or whatever. Okay. That was just on the long tail. I mean, there's a hundred thousand after that. How do you even conceive of the fact that and you had a great investment anchor, actually, 
where yeah. you benefited from. Tell me a little bit about that one. And I think that one had to be a little bittersweet. Yeah, absolutely. Been for me. Yeah, absolutely. Explain. Um, what no, that's an example anchor. of a company that believed in uh, the value of audio content, particularly sh- relatively short form uh, audio content to start. And they wanted to build the platform for the creation, distribution, and monetization of that content. And they succeeded. Um, and they, yeah, they succeeded. Um, they sold to Spotify, as you know. Uh, and our view is, you know, that could have been an enormous business. Um, but the founders need to decide what they want the next phase of the company to be. And they decided they could have a bigger impact within the confines of Spotify. Um, it's a great outcome for everyone. So uh, no complaints at all. Um, but, but one complaint. <laughs> but there's still one complaint because if you have yeah. a business that gets you did a 15x on that probably um yeah more i think yeah because yeah, we were the first investors yeah yeah you were in the 12 million dollar round it sold i heard for upwards of 200 i don't know if that number ever exactly came out um but at least 200 i think and so the pain of that is that well what if it 10x from there and instead of a 20x or a 30x whatever you could have a two or 300x but the, the thing about, I'll say about that, Jason, is like it was never going to 10x, 20x, 30x if the founders weren't going to will it to that as yes. an independent company. That's right? true. So if they, if they had decided that they were better off in the confines of another company, mm-hmm. then that was the right outcome for that company. I think that is a very namaste way to be at peace with it. I, this is, I think for me, one of the toughest things that I have to learn to deal with which is, you know, sometimes founders take the quick win and I understand it. I did it myself with Weblogs Inc. when I sold it to AOL yeah. um, and I needed to get that first win. But back then you didn't have secondary and I got to think Anchor could have just sold, ha- they, the founders could have sold half their position and gone long, especially at that time and built a competitor. Oh man, it just would have made me crazy. But you know, but- in, our, in our business, it works both ways, right? Like I, I'm sure you've heard that there are investors in Snapchat who wanted Snapchat to sell. At a billion dollars. And, you know, Evan didn't. And you saw what it became. Yeah. The investors benefited from that. Right. So you never know. You never know. I guess that's true. You invested in Mercury. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, You invested later. That was a late stage investment for you. Yeah. That was after uh, we'd moved to our personal capital. What, what, um, let's go back to our little dueling banjos here. Mm -hmm. I have one. Yeah. We will never invest in an accounting nightmare or messy cap tables. Unless we will. <laughs> so if this company is yeah. growing really well and they gave 30% of their company to a dev shop that did $100,000 worth of work, like we normally will not engage that company unless I really love it. And then mm-hmm. I'll say, let me talk to the dev shop and explain to them why they should take $100,000 and 5% of the company so they don't screw up the cap table is a small slice of this and getting the 100k is better than it being unfundable so yeah. that's then, one for but me. you you fix the cap table before you get invested correct i yeah. use our bankroll and i say to the founder listen we can't in good conscience you know this cap table is scr- so screwed up you guys have 40 percent of the company you gave a seed investor 30 percent. you gave the dev shop 30 percent. you don't have control of your own company and you just got to 25k a month in revenue Yep. There's no VC who's ever going to invest in this. We right. have to clean it up now. So I'll put in 500K. 250 can go to buy out these existing investors. They can still have skin in the game. 
they get an amazing return. And then you guys get back up to 70% ownership. The investors own 25% and this Fakaka maniac dev shop that you gave the company to gets 5%. Yeah, but uh, I'm assuming if you aren't able to clean up the cap table in that way, I'm you're not, not going to invest, right? Yeah, I totally yeah. agree. Messy cap tables, messy accounting. Um, Oof. Just life's too short. I mean, I have these accounting situations where people are doing cash-based accounting for a subscription product where they sell two-year subscriptions. And I'm like, not only is this a problem because we don't know if the plane's at 30,000 feet or 3,000, and we don't know if our speed is you know 600 miles an hour or 100, and this is dangerous to fly a plane like that. We could have tax issues. You could get hit with the tax bill that we don't expect. And this could be a year of cleaning stuff up. Yeah. There are other heuristics that you look at. We did TAM. We did the founders, mm. multi-co-founders. We did cap tables. What else? When you go to invest, ugh, you say, you know, we can't do that anymore. We can never do that. But then, hey, maybe we'll break the rule. Yeah. Like, are there categories you'll never touch? Like, I've had, I've gotten my ass kicked in direct-to-consumer and hardware. Those yeah, are hard, we, no, we, we've always said that too, but we've made exceptions uh, in those areas. Um, and, you know, sometimes that works out all right. You know, Cruise, which we were early in, I can't remember, hardware. I think you were an investor, right? Hardware. Yeah. Started as a hardware aftermarket kit, mm. right? Um, and turned out just fine. That was um, a quick flip for you, was it not? Yeah, it was two years, I think, something like that. Isn't that weird when that happens? You invest in something two years later, you just get this, you know, 5, 10, 20x? Yeah, it's crazy. Crazy. crazy and then you're sending money to your lps early and they're like what happened and you're like yeah. you know how we told you it's we 10 lucky. years yeah. it's like we got lucky <laughs> yeah. sometimes weird stuff i had this happen was a great podcasting app called swell just love oh, yeah. the interface of it i put a quarter million or a half million dollars into it and i just was like oh this is the one like i love podcasts this is 10 years ago i don't know nine ten years ago and then apple's like you know what podcasting is important we'll buy that company and i was like oh no 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 don't sell and they're like yeah we're doubling your money. Good news. Doubling your money. Like your situation. Right. I was like, that, that's that's the worst thing I could ever hear is double. It's interesting. I don't know if you've experienced this, but our very best companies, almost to a T, have all almost gone out of business several times in 100%. each of their paths. 100%. Um, it, it, if you're not almost going out of business, you're not audacious enough in all likelihood to be an outlier. So Uber existential moments, Tesla existential moments, Airbnb, they had the crucible moment when the person trashed the apartment and they had it later in their life with COVID. Yeah. I mean, these, these companies have so many existential moments uh, that you have to deal with. In terms of psychology, what have you learned about founder psychology? Have you started to have, we're talking about our mental models, things we'll never do, the heuristics. We, li we like to think about thinking as investors, but let's just go to archetypes of founders. A lot of people want to believe there's one type of founder. And I, and I do have this archetype and this heuristic. We're not going to invest in abrasive people who are just cantankerous and just brutal to deal with unless they're incredibly high performing. <laughs> you know, and it's like high performer. If you, do, if you do the four quadrants, like high performer, low performer, easy to get along with, difficult to get along with. Don Valentine did this. Mm -hmm. quadrant famously and he was like where do you think we make our money and it's like high performer hard to get along with <laughs> it's almost always the case what are the archetypes that you found and the ones you love working with and the ones that maybe founders can learn from that this type of founder fails often 
or more often. So an, an, another heuristic we have is that we'll never invest in a round that doesn't have a lead investor. Explain um, when why. We were, when we were a fund, we were often that leader co uh, lead investor, and now we are less often. Um, and the reason for that is we believe that if there's a responsible party as a lead investor, then there we know that somebody is paying attention, and more uh, and just as importantly, also know that there's somebody that the founder feels responsible to outside of the company. Mm-hmm. Um. And if they're willing at the earliest stage when we typically invest to have that kind of obligation, responsibility, relationship, uh, we think it says something about their perspective on company building and on the time and energy it's going to take to build this company over the long term that is indicative of the kind of founder that we want to back and is likely to have the most success. So that's a heuristic that we've always had. Um, I love that, to, by the to, way. To your, and then to your 4 by 4 or Don Valentine's 4 by 4 our largest companies, Chime, Plaid, Gusto, Shield, Bowery Farming, I would say that all of those founders fall in the high intellect, high EQ box. Like none of them are in the cantankerous bucket. Now, Interesting. it's hard to know, you know, if that's selection bias uh, or if it's uh, something that has been a predictor of success for them or what it is. But we we ha- we haven't had the experience that you've had um, in terms of the cantankerous folks who've knocked it I've out of the park. Both. I've had both. Yeah. There are some people who are just incredible, high EQ, want to make everybody feel great soft power individuals. Uh, but man, I, I got to think when we look back on this founder friendly, and I'm using air quotes right now, moment in time, there has never been a more duplicitous, deceptive, dishonest, double dealing term in the history of our industry. Absolutely. The, what people say is founder friendly is just actually giving the worst support to a founder to say it's a lack of support. It's a lack of support is what's defined as founder friendly. Yeah. No lead investor. Do a party round so nobody's in charge. So nobody cares that you're running out of money. Uh, don't do board meetings. Don't give information rights. Don't share information with people who have more experience than you, who have backed you and have the bankroll to give you more money and create an adversarial relationship. And, and, and this did start a little bit inside of YC where there was a sort of like, I know Paul Graham had bad experiences, and those bad experiences are real. He had bad experiences with VCs. But for every bad experiences, I think there's a hundred other great experiences. And then to, I think it just, it kind of got away with itself, which was, if I can get 50 investors for 50K each, I'll do that. Why have somebody put in a million and then say we have to have four board meetings a year or I have to write a monthly update? Jason, when we started Homebrew, we wrote early on a blog post around the value of boards at the seed stage. We said from the very beginning that if you take a check from Homebrew and we're the leader co-lead investor, there will be a board created. We'll likely be the board member. You can choose for you know somebody else from the investor syndicate, but there will be a board created. And so many people, founders less so, but investors told us, you'll never win an investment. Like nobody's ever going to want to work with you. And mm. you know, 10 years later, not only do the results prove them wrong, but I think we feel vindicated by 
some of the things that have happened at these companies that have had no oversight over the last few years, right? Like where you're seeing fraud or misrepresentation or excessive spending without limit or bad hiring or whatever it is, right? Like, uh, again, it comes back to the, that heuristic that we talked about, which is if a founder is unwilling to have a lead investor, uh, let alone a board seat, but a lead investor at the seed stage, uh, then we think that yeah, that's an investment we're not likely to make. What is the and you advocate four six a year at that early seed stage? What uh, one advocate. hour board meeting? Yeah, how many? Oh yeah, uh, usually uh, an hour, uh, probably an hour and a half board meeting four times a year. So like literally, the ask and the recommendation is ninety minutes times four. <laughs> I'm not a math genius, but it's about six hours. And if you say it's going to take 10 hours to prepare for each board meeting, which I think would be a lot at this stage, I mean, we're talking about 46 hours, one week of the year is spent being thoughtful and considering what we've accomplished in the past three months, what we want to accomplish in the next three months, and talking it out as adults in a room who have a vested interest in seeing this succeed and making sure that risk of ruin things like insurance and cap tables accounting, HR are not forgotten because a lot of founders have never done that stuff before. So think about all the unnecessary mortality in our space. It's literally like infant mortality. Like we could just have an incubator here and just some basic rules of the road. And I'm amazed. I, I get into these seed stage board meetings. We copied you. We did the same exact thing. Hey, if we own five or 10%, let's just four board meetings a year. We tell them one hour to 90 minutes each, same exact as you. And it could just be product. We could do product at one. We could do HR at one. We could just have a theme, or you can do quickly product, HR, you know, challenges, whatever you want to do. Um, and my God, the amount of times that we have um, saved a company from flipping the car, it, it's, it's countless. It's countless. Yeah. I mean, I think all the companies that we've worked with would tell you, even if they're hesitant going in, like it proved to be valuable because all mm -hmm. it is is a 90 minute step back from the day to day of the business once every three months to focus on one or two strategic topics mm. that you probably won't make time for otherwise because you're dealing with all the crap that you deal with in the day to day of the business mm -hmm. and having a couple of other people to help pro provide perspective on those topics. Like, like who wouldn't want that? It, it literally like if I said, hey, you could buy this service for $10,000 a year. The same, if you had 100 people and you said, hey, $10,000 a year, you could buy this quarterly, you know, coaching session, um, or you could have it for free, like people would pay the $10,000 for that. So, it, I mean, it's, it's hilarious. But to to but your point, I think like all this uh, rumor and anger and whatever it was got wrapped up around this notion of what a board and a board member is. Mm. And... Uh, it's it, and and the work to dispel it is really hard. Uh, it is, but I think it's becoming clear to a lot of people. And the, and and to your point, like for every one bad example, there are so many good examples. Um, which is why it was kind of never a question for years around the creation of a board um, and the the idea of having active investors. Um, and then we got into party rounds, and then in the last ten years, kind of boards with no board you know, companies with no boards um oh and, yeah i mean look at ftx changed. who was on the board of ftx i mean who was who was on the compensation committee who was on the audit committee like 
Compensation committee and audit committee, they come, I don't know what, Series B, Series C, yeah, $10, $20 million in revenue. Mm -hmm. There was a company with billions of dollars sloshing around and, and by all means and all observations, we'll find out, it will come out in the lawsuit and the criminal trials. No comp committee? No audit committee? I mean, this is just a, a dereliction of duty Whoa. at the highest level. Well, it just goes to show that no matter how long you've been in this business, like you can fall into making mistakes because you're trying to get involved with a particular founder or a particular company, right? Mm. Like there, there were obviously high quality investors in FTX um, who yeah. uh, FTX is an anomaly relative to how they probably do oversight and management of other companies they're involved with. Um but that's the world we were living in the last 10 years, right? It, in many ways, the, the price of winning was to commit a number of unnatural acts. And unfortunately, some of those unnatural acts are going to lead to pain. And suffering. It literally yeah. is going it, it is the root of all this evil. And we found, and you could tell me if this tracks yours, that when we told people, hey, we're on the board of the company. And we've done six board meetings. And when they did their diligence for the Series A or B or whatever it was the next round, and they were able to see the board decks or see the projections. The companies in the seed stage were at a massive advantage, had a massive advantage over the non-board meeting ones because they felt more venture ready and they felt like they would be better stewards of capital. So what, what did you see? 100%. It was one of the arguments we made in, the, in that very first blog post is like, we think it'll be a signal to the next set of investors that this company is venture ready. Um, it's great practice for the founders to be able to do kind of low pressure board meetings before the big check comes from a series A investor who's going to be on the board forever, probably. Mm -hmm. Right. So like just having that practice and that muscle memory or what around what a board meeting feels like is really beneficial to founders. Um, but so there, there are lots of reasons why, uh, in reality, there's value in having a board at the seed yeah. stage and lots of reasons, uh, that are made up around why it's not a good idea. Yeah, we basically made it super simple because we are high volume investors. We have the accelerator. We do seven companies in each one. We've done 28 of those. And then we started something founder university where we do 25K into companies that even aren't even incorporated yet. So we'll give them the 25K to like incorporate and get going. We have a large number of names. And what we tell them is if we own over five or 10%, we've changed it over the years. We'll have a board observer seat or a board seat option. We'll have the option at that. And then when we, We've been trying to automate people giving us their revenue. So we asked them to do a monthly update, very short, you know, like literally one pager. But if we don't get that, we'll just say, hey, can you just give us cash on hand at the end of the month, number of full-time employees, how much revenue and how much spend? And then we'll we'll do some math there. Um, and when we did that, we just said, anybody who hits $500,000 in yearly revenue, so you hit that 40K a month mark-ish, we just say, you know what? we would like to elect to start these board meetings. Um, and can we set four dates for next year? And people are like, did I do something wrong? Am I in trouble? It's quite the opposite. <laughs> We've been watching you, young Jedi. And the force is strong. <laughs> and at 500K in revenue, pretty good idea to have a board. Like, yeah. it, it, I think 3 million in funds raised or 500K in yearly revenue, you should want to have a board. You're, you're a real concern now. You're a real uh, business. Hey, let's talk about diversity. We, yeah, sure. Go, no, no, go no I was just going to say, we, we approached it also a little bit it kind of in terms of helping uh, lead the horse to water. Because in addition to the board seat and the board meeting, 
what we said is, aside from the board meeting, we should have some regular cadence by which we talk about the actual stuff going on day to day in the business. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we think that should be weekly or biweekly. Um, but you tell us like what's useful for you. Mm-hmm. And because we were having that very tactical conversation with people in advance of the first time we do a board meeting, by the time the board meeting comes around, the first one, it feels like a very natural conversation to go from like the day-to-day tactical and say, hey, like we're thinking about the long-term of the business. Why don't we have a conversation about that? And it turns out that's a board meeting, right? Mm. It just happens to be a working session that's a little bit longer than the regular touch base and focused on a different type of issue than the hair on fire problem that you're dealing with, you know, in any particular day or week. And so uh, by the time that the board meeting came around, everyone was like, oh, this feels like what I might do with people on my team inside the company. Mm. And now we're just happen to have an investor here. And it kind of sold itself over the course of time. So we never had to convince anybody like now's the time for a board meeting or we should do a board meeting. It was just kind of the natural progression of things. And again, not, you know, I'm definitely not going to argue we're the world's best board members or anything like that. But yeah, I think it's an important sign that, you know, I'm on a bunch of boards now. What we the other commitment we made to the companies when uh, we made the investment the seed is like we'll stay we'll, we want a board seat but we'll step off your board at the Series B because when you have a Series A and Series B investor on the board you really don't want three VCs on your board um, mm. and we've been working with you long enough where we'll have a long standing relationship with you. Turns out, a surprise to us, you know, more than half the boards I'm on now, either in a formal board seat or as a board observer, are post Series B. Of course, that you you did a good job, but they want to keep you around. Why wouldn't you want to keep somebody who supported you early around? It's good for the spirit of the company. It's good to have, you know, somebody who knows the entire history. Uh, I'm on so, I'm on two boards that became unicorns, and both of them we were the lead seed investor, and well, one of them we were the lead seed investor. Density, we put the first 400k in, and the second one, Grin, we incubated. And in both those cases, I've been on the board, and I could have stepped off, I guess, and let the other series B investors, series C investors, you know, and I get a free ride, but I'm like, I just want to be there with the founders when they ring the bell at the NASDAQ, you know, I just, yeah. I, I, th- just I, I think it just speaks journey. to, yeah, it just speaks to like the vast majority of board act- interactions are good. And I think most sure. founders with those board interactions find real value. Hey, uh, the industry wasn't, I'll wrap on this because um, you've been very generous with your time. Um, screen door. Uh, you started, uh, I guess, uh, this program to help maybe change the face of VC a little when you and I came into it. Let's face it, it was a lot of Stanford MBAs, Harvard MBAs, Wharton. It was a pretty clubby, yeah, even just like when we you. started. Yeah. Uh, I think they look mostly like me and mostly sometimes like you. Like you. Yeah. <laughs> I think you would, <laughs> you're Indian, I take it? Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah, I wasn't sure. Uh, so if you're Indian, like, I think that was kind of the first uh, underrepresented group to maybe be allowed into the the, the, the club, typically yeah. white male space. Congratulations. <laughs> but black women, Hispanic women, people of color generally, man, it's been, it was pretty, it's pretty sad. Yeah. Um, you've uh, tried to turn that around. Tell everybody about uh, screendoorpartners.com uh, is the domain name and Screendoor is the name of this effort. Tell everybody what you're trying to do here. Yeah. Um, so to your point, kind of where VC dollars go, who makes VC dollar decisions is still unfortunately largely unchanged from when the industry started. And 
certainly doesn't reflect uh, the population more generally. Um, when we started homebrew, we decided very early on that it was never going to be larger than the two of us. And so we didn't have the option of building a firm and kind of changing the nature of the industry by hiring a bunch of people. And at the same time, as we were building homebrew, kind of as we matured, uh, we were being approached by new GPs every single month, every single week. Um, and a lot of them came from underrepresented backgrounds, maybe surprisingly, um, people trying to break into the industry. Uh, and the number one thing we heard from them was, well, there's no shortage of advice for us, but there's absolutely no money. <laughs> um, yeah. Thanks for the meeting. Yeah. Would have preferred a check. <laughs> exactly. Thanks for all um, the praise. Yeah. But and still need a check. <laughs> that's right. Um, and then Hunter and I are big believers that, you know, we're all standing on the shoulders of giants in technology, right? Like everything in technology was built on the backs of somebody else who came before us and a back of technology that came before us. Um, and we've benefited from this virtuous cycle that's existed in technology and VC with LPs providing capital to VCs. VCs providing that capital founders, founders hiring employees, those companies going on to be successful and that wealth and that knowledge feeding back into the ecosystem. But that virtuous cycle has only been accessible to small segments of the population, folks who primarily look like me and you. Um, and so we, we took all these data points and we said, well, there seems like a real opportunity here to build a product. You know, we come from product backgrounds, so we try to identify white space. Um, to build a product that maybe doesn't try to bring people into the existing virtuous cycle because that seems slow and difficult to scale, right? Like the big platforms hiring their one underrepresented partner and giving them a checkbook, improving themselves over the course of time, et cetera. It's uh, a decade long wait in least. line. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's yeah. a multi decade wait in line. And we saw what happened, you know, at Kleiner Perkins with that, uh, without pointing fault at anybody. They tried their best to try to. You know, diversify the firm. It didn't work out. And, um, and listen, there are lots of good efforts underway because sure. that is important change still. But we just want to try something different. We said, well, what if we tried to recreate the virtuous cycle? What if we tried to make it possible that the people who are in this virtuous cycle from day one are people who come from underrepresented backgrounds? And so we looked at that cycle and said, well, the right entry point or the right, right way to kickstart it might be to put underrepresented venture managers into business because they're empirically more likely to back underrepresented founders who are more likely to hire underrepresented employees. And if those companies become successful, then that success is going to yield more dollars and more advice for people who look like the other people in that virtuous cycle. So much we started more disruptive. Much more yeah, disruptive. So that's our theory of change with Screen Door is a lot more people can be impacted a lot more quickly if we as Screen Door, which is effectively a fund of funds, helps put underrepresented venture managers into business. So we try to find underrepresented managers who are raising their first funds, provide them with anchor institutional capital, combined with advice from GPs who are still practitioners, but who have been in their seat uh, before, but are now on their third, fourth, fifth funds. So people like Charles Hudson at Precursor, Kanye Machabella at Kindred Ventures, Kirsten Green at Forerunner. Um, these are people who are spending real time uh, advising our managers and helping with the diligence of them. And we started that fund of funds a couple of years ago. We've backed 11 managers so far. 
Uh, we just hired a full-time managing director. We have big plans for uh, what Screen Door can be over the course of time. Um, but the high-level objective is to be the leading LP for underrepresented managers uh, in the venture business with the idea of changing not just the face of venture capital, but the face of technology by virtue of empowering underrepresented VCs. It's amazing. So every time you meet a new fund manager or a GP, somebody wants to break into this, you will do an SPV or something and pass the hat or just pass the hat amongst you and everybody just makes a commitment? No, no. We, we have raised funds from oh, uh, wow. traditional institutions. So our LPs- Oh, fantastic. Uh, so it is a fund are, defense. Yeah, yeah our, our LPs are Princeton, Harvard, oh, uh, Northwestern, Duke, Virginia, major endowments, a uh, certain, certain number of family foundations um, who, for them, we're solving a real problem too because their institutions are so large- that they can't write small checks. No. Most of these funds are smaller than 100 million, right? As first time funds. Yeah, 10, um, 20, 30 million dollar funds. Yeah. yeah. It's hard for them to, these institutes, for, to evaluate managers who don't come from traditional backgrounds, right? Um, you, the traditional path has been to apprentice at a big platform and spin out and start a fund, right? Mm-hmm. And these people don't come from those backgrounds uh, for, for the most part and don't have traditional investment track records. And so they have given us capital to help them identify these and train these managers so that they can support them directly as their funds mature and become larger. Mm. Um, and so we're solving a problem, we think, for both sides of the market. Yeah, it's really commendable. I think it's exactly the right strategy. Um, waiting in line is bullshit. It takes too long. Uh, you get marginalized inside of these firms from what I've seen. Often they're not given check writing ability. And, you know, then you, you're spending all this time and I hate to use the term, but I feel like a lot of firms, it's it's like token, uh, you know, handouts where they'll put people into positions and call them a partner, but they're not even meeting with founders or writing checks. So I feel like this is the clear path. And actually, we are also LPs, or I should say I'm an LP in Monique's uh, Cake Ventures. So yeah. it's great to so, see so that we support yeah, her. And, exactly. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, our, our view is that we are an economic vehicle with a societal mandate. And we intend to deliver outsized returns via these managers and demonstrate to people like there's a untapped, unrealized economic opportunity here. And we want others to follow suit, hopefully. Yeah. I also think like these managers, because this opportunity is so hard fought, like I feel in a certain way, it was very hard for me to break into this, but I just feel and might be my own imposter syndrome. Uh, even at this era, I feel like I got to work twice as hard because I didn't go mm-hmm to Stanford or whatever. I mean, now I'm, I do have a lot of those folks want to come work for me. So that's kind of rewarding. But <laughs> what do you think of the whole Silicon Valley bank thing? Uh, and sort of what's happened? It was since probably then? the biggest self inflicted wound that any institution has ever delivered to itself. Unbelievable, right? I mean, the stuff that's yeah. come out since we're sitting here. And now they're saying like, they knew the risk they were taking. There were alarm bells going off at the know if you saw the Washington Post story yesterday. But Apparently, this was kind of a known problem inside the firm, and they were aggressively trying to just make returns to make the stock pop. And I think we'll find well, out in the postmortem that I also, hey, but I yeah, think it was a communication misstep as as much as a risk misstep, right? The risk is real, like that happened in the past, but like they and they got to a certain point. But if they had done the private placement. In, or the public fund you know, in 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 private right. announced it when it was already done. Yes, um, and communicated strength uh, to the market. Um, it, 
you know, in theory could have prevented a run because a run is just a lack of confidence. Right. Um, right. But, but you can't blame presented, anybody who has, yeah. you know, payroll to hit on Monday from saying, you know what, I've, I've got a million dollars or $2 million here and my payroll is 300 or whatever. I, I got no choice. And it's a shame because there's a reason people worked with SVB that are not about it being like the clubby Silicon Valley bank, right? Like we had to move, we were Silicon Valley bank customers as, as a fund. Uh, we've had to move our banking uh, temporarily to uh, another institution. We've subsequently moved a bank back to Silicon Valley Bank. Um, and the other bridge bank, bank, Silicon Valley Bridge Bank. Yeah, right. Uh, what is it going to be? What is it going to be now? Is it are, is the Silicon Valley brand going to still exist? No, it's been acquired by uh, yeah the other bank, and so there is their brand now. But are um, they the thing I'm trying to figure out? Is, are they going to keep that high touch? culture or are they just acquiring it and they're just like hey well here's our yeah. standard offering remains to be seen i don't know but like uh, simple things like our our you know temporarily new bank they can't do batch wire processing which as a fund if you're trying to make a distribution to your lps as oh an example Lord. makes it impossible right yeah so uh, here's a huge list of wires we need to get done get to work right. And then on a more personal note, like my first mortgage was through Silicon Valley Bank because nobody understood the value of equity or understood a K-1 and I didn't have a W-2. Right. They were the only ones who could underwrite that risk. Right. Um, So both from a personal standpoint and professional standpoint, there are lots of reasons to work with SVB and it's going to be a major gap in the market if nobody can fill those shoes or they can't continue to operate the way they operate. Yeah, I uh, my first two mortgages came from Silicon Valley Bank for my office space and then for my first house. I still have one of those. I sold the office space one, although I'm selling the office space because San Francisco. Nobody yeah, we still live in the house that we bought with Silicon Valley Bank mortgage. I'm getting barbecued online on Twitter. People took a clip of me saying how delightful it was to work with them. And I'm like, uh, yeah, they came over, they popped bottles of wine. I, that's a liability I have with them, not the other way around. I'm 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 not short the stock, long the stock. I have like the tiniest of mortgages, but that's their liability, not mine. No. And I, they did such a wonderful job of, like you're saying, assessing a VC's net worth and future revenue streams and saying, okay, yeah, it's reasonable that this VC, their revenue is spiky, K1s come in, ooh, Uber distribution, oh, Robinhood distribution, oh, no distribution for two years, oh, huge distribution this year. Like, it, it's a different lifestyle and they... uh they yeah, and this was early it. in my VC career when all my, all my value was in Google stock, right? Yeah. Like they, they understood how to look at Google stock and no other bank yep. would even consider it. No, they would just be like, what? How do we do that? Yeah. It's uh, sad to see it happen and completely unnecessary. Or listen, Satya, great to have you on the program. I will see you next year. I'm booking it for next year. All right. If you make it, you make it. If, I, if it takes me another two or three years, that's okay too. But we'll do a portfolio review next time. I, I don't want to. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. Always fun to chat oh, with you, Jason. It's great to chat. And thank you for sharing all this information. And just if you want to have one of the great legendary investors now in their second decade with their own money, their own skin in the game, I give no higher recommendation than the team at Homebrew. They are in it for the right reasons. They don't need to work. They're already done well for themselves. They do it because you love it. You have a passion for startups and company building. That's how yeah. we want to spend our days. And that's as great as it gets. You know, when you have an investor who is that passionate, uh, it means they're focused on your success. So uh, you want to pick your investors wisely. And one of the wisest decisions you can make, and I mean this sincerely, is homebrew. Great job. Thanks, Chase. Really appreciate it. All right. We'll see everybody next time on This Week in Startups. Bye-bye.